are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong women. So first, I want to thank everyone for the outpouring of positive messages following last week's show on overcoming the mental minefield of injuries. It's something we don't talk about enough, and I'm really grateful for Heidi's work and wisdom on the topic. And well, this week's show will follow a similar trajectory. It too was inspired by many discussions in the social media channels and in the Feisty Menopause membership, and it's also one that is near and dear to my heart body image, and eating disorders. Like probably everyone who can hear my voice right now, I've struggled with both at some point, well, more than just some point, my entire life. Playing sports and running and racing bikes helps, but it can also be the source of some of those issues or even make them worse. And when you hit menopause and your body composition starts changing suddenly, it can make these issues, even if they were pretty well resolved, rear their ugly head. So I reached out to Dr. Christy Greenleaf of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Her primary research focuses on the psychosocial aspects of weight, physical activity, body image, and disordered eating. As a lifelong figure skater, she knows a thing or two about all of these issues on a very personal level as well as on a professional level. And boy, did she deliver on this topic. I'm confident that her words will resonate with many of you listening right now. So tune in, buckle up. Gets a little emotional here and there, but, but she's really, really awesome. And before we get to it, just a quick reminder that if you're enjoying the show, please share it with a friend, spread the word on socials, give it a good review. All of those things are really helping us to keep on keeping on and to grow this podcast. And with that, let's get to the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us, Christy. I'm very excited to have you. This is a this is a really important conversation. Um, more important at this time of life than I think I ever would have imagined, quite quite honestly. And I was wondering, you sent me this amazing picture of you when I asked for a, a shot of you doing something with your leg on ice that I can't imagine doing, like the one of those things where you hold up the ice skate above your head. And um, so you are a figure skater, or you were a figure skater. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that might have led you into being someone who knows about body image and eating disorders? Sure. Yeah. So when I was quite young, we lived in Michigan and uh, my parents would go ice skating quite a bit and I got too heavy to be held. So I got a pair of ice skates (laughs) and then I saw an ice skating show where people wore really fun costumes and twirled around and I was quite enamored. Wow. And so at about the age of three, I started taking lessons and um, three. Yeah. And just really have always loved the feeling of gliding on the ice. I love the cold air, just all the kind of sensory experiences Mm -hmm. of skating brought me a lot of joy. And I loved the challenge of it. What wasn't so great for me was that my um, natural body shape 
did not conform to the very thin ideal that mm -hmm. is really pervasive in figure skating and in a lot of other sports and in general for women in our society, right? When did you become aware of that? I think when I uh, was probably about, well, okay, here's a good example. When I was 10, I was on Weight Watchers. Oh, I'm, I would bang my head, but I'd wrote record recordings, so I'm not going to yeah. bang my head. But oh yeah. my god, it's funny yeah, you're not to alone. I mean, you're not alone. I knew some of my friends dieting by that point. Yeah, it's funny to reflect back on that because I I think I was excited to do it. Mm -hmm. I was very committed to it. I really mm -hmm. thought I was doing the right thing. I know my my parents thought this is in your best interest and because we'll of skating yes okay. yeah and i just always kind of looked a little bit chubby i, I don't think i would ever have been called overweight or classified mm -hmm. but i just was not a real skinny kid <laughs> yeah no <laughs> no i wasn't either yeah and so um you know i learned really early on to count calories and to really monitor my food intake and the what I came to see is the value of kind of self-control, which I think will be a continuous theme probably in our conversation today, this desire for control, right? And, you know, food and exercise in our bodies are so <laughs> intertwined mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In, in terms of the desire to, you know, control things. Um, and so, I, you know, I it's funny, I don't think about it negatively. I don't have bad memories of that, mm -hmm. but I, I am certain <laughs> that that, you know, really was probably reflective of um, what was thought of as best practice at the time, um, you know, to engage in a weight management program. Um, and then I think, you know, as I became a teenager, I became just more and more aware and self-conscious and engaging in social comparison um, and, uh, you know, after I got out of high school, I skated in ice capades for a year and they had wow. weight requirements. We got weight every week. Whoa. Okay. And that, that was really difficult. Um, and I feel, I feel quite fortunate, honestly, that I didn't emerge from that experience with the pretty severe eating disorder. Um, and so. Did you develop an eating disorder? I didn't. I, Even disordered know, eating or. I definitely disordered eating, but right. nothing um, to the extent where clinical treatment was right. needed. But mm -hmm. I certainly wasn't healthy. I mean, I had a very disturbed kind of attitude toward food in part because of the weight cycling that I got into. That was probably the hardest thing. Um, and so as I got into college and particularly into graduate school and started um, taking classes in exercise psychology and learning about body image, mm -hmm. it, a light bulb kind of went off for me. And, and I thought, mm -hmm. oh, this is really what I'm interested in and where I think I'd like to, you know, do work um, right. and to better understand it in part because of my own experience, but in part because I think probably like you, you just see a lot of people around you, mm -hmm. you know, also mm -hmm. facing challenges and thinking, does it really have to be like this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. so that's kind of how skating led me to this kind of area of study. Wow. Yeah, you said a lot of things there. And I, and I try not to make this like I never want to make this show about me, but I always like to share some of my own anecdotes because I know it helps my audience feel like 
they're not alone in this. So I'm going to like just lay out like the good, the bad and the ugly. Very similar to what you're saying. Like, I remember my pediatrician telling my mom that I was overweight when I was in third grade. And I learned right away that I wasn't shaped right. And I had to try to control food. And, you know, I was always a bigger girl, too. I was very active. I played sports. I played field hockey. Wasn't a very good endurance athlete. That wasn't my thing at the time. People met me later, and they're like, you ran an Ironman? Like, what? Who? But but anyway, to your point, you know, um, you know, I got into college, and, like, my everything changed. I didn't have my friends. I didn't have my same sports. I didn't have anything. And I developed a bad eating disorder because I associated I was super afraid of the freshman 15 because everyone's like oh you're gonna get fat and blah blah and uh I I became anorexic and bulimic terribly um uh, my mom had threatened to pull me out of college but I was still getting straight A's and in my mind as long as I could get straight A's nothing was wrong with me uh you know, but it's, you get a lot of positive reinforcement, a lot. People are like, oh, you should model. You're so skinny. You're so, I mean, it was the time when, you know, Kate Moss was the thing and, th- you know, thinner, you couldn't be thin enough. Like, that was a great thing to be. My hair was falling out. I was cold all the time. It was really bad. I was in a terrible relationship. I was smoking cigarettes, like uh, all this stuff. You know, like, I, I can barely recognize that person I was. And when I got home and I got back on a bike, I'm like, wow, I can't even ride. Like, I can't, I can't even, so I dumped the boyfriend, I slowly stopped smoking, like it, it all kind of left the way it came, but I will, after, and I'll, you know, I've never actually spoken about it this, so I've written about it, I used to make myself vomit with a toothbrush, and one time it slipped out of my hand and stuck in my throat, and I thought, this is how I die, and I was like, this is what my mom's going to hear, so... Um, control is a big thing, and I didn't mean to cry, and I didn't mean to go this way this early. But it... Wow, I'm sorry. It's a tough, tough issue, and we're so enmeshed in it that sometimes it's hard to recognize how much It's so hard for me to hear these women. Mm -hmm. I think I'm just... I've been hearing them, and I understand them, because everything was pretty good with me, because I was racing competitively, and life was great, right? Things were very in control. And then I hit menopause, and I was like, what is happening? <laughs> you know, my body was not my own anymore again. Like, it started doing these things, and how I identified was changing, and I was always, like, you know, getting race pictures taken, and it it messed with my head in a huge way. And, it, you know, I, I got on top of it, and I changed how I trained, and I... I you know, a lot of a lot of work, a lot of acceptance, a lot of changes, a lot of things. But um, it it strikes me how it can all roar back at this time of life. And I remember losing a friend when I was I was much younger. She was fifty and battled eating disorders her whole life and died of heart failure. And I see these women; they're so angry and they're so sad and they're so like, where do we start? Like, where can we? Man, I just dumped a whole lot on you. I'm so sorry. I didn't see that coming, audience. I didn't see that coming. But no, it's so tough, you know, because as women in particular, we're just bombarded with messages that conflate our identity and our appearance. And age is a big part of that. There's so much value placed on having a youthful and fit appearance. Whether or not, as you kind of gave some examples, that actually reflects health. 
is quite, <laughs> so often it doesn't. Yeah, it's quite questionable, but that's that's what is assumed. That's what's advertised. That's mm-hmm. what's sold to us. And, and sometimes when someone tells you you look healthy, that's almost an insult. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yes. when you're in those those spheres, you're like, oh, you look healthy. Yeah. I mean, I'm fat. Well, I mean, that's. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I I very vividly recall this was many years ago, but um, I had really been restricting what I was eating and, and had lost some weight. And um, someone saying to me, you look really fit. And I just thought to myself, if you knew wow. I was hardly eating anything, yeah. you would mm-hmm. not be telling me I look fit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because I'm I, engaging in some really yeah. unhealthy behaviors to look like this. And, yeah. you know, so I think with age – there's some benefit in in having some lived experience to reflect back on. A hundred percent. Right. And a, a bit maybe hopefully a broader perspective about, you know, what's important in life. Um, but it's so hard to disconnect from all the things that you've been socialized into. Um, and, you know, when you reached out to me about this topic, I was I was really thrilled because it's something I think that doesn't get talked a lot about. And in the research literature, what's kind of interesting is um, there seems to be a, a divergent path where during middle age, there's sort of this opportunity to step away from some of the societal constraints and expectations. And, and some women report feeling a little bit more free. Hmm. Mm-hmm, and uh, mm-hmm. the other path is, I think, maybe more in line with what you described of being really frustrated that, you know, maybe um, your body shape is changing or your function ability to function at a high level in terms of maybe sports Especially performance. since this woman is very, these are reactive women. Yeah. And so there's a lot of frustration. And I think the whole issue of control kind of circles back, right? That especially when you're involved in sport and fitness, you do a lot of things because they're within your control, right? Your training, um, things you might do to prepare for an event or a competition. They're they're very much goal oriented or achievement oriented. Whether those goals are you know more personal or maybe more extrinsic, but you're doing a lot of things that are very controllable. And for a long time, there's a very clear linkage between the effort and the outcome. And I think what happens is that starts to become less clear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> right? Boy, and it sounds like maybe that's what all you experience. It says the work you put in is what you get out for a very long time. Right. And then all of a sudden it's like that doesn't, it, it gets perturbed in a, in a serious mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are a couple you know, challenges that people face. One is on the cognitive side, you know, sort of the dissatisfaction with like, well, this used to work, like my training program used to really pay off in this way. And now it's not and feeling, you know, frustrated or unhappy with that. And then I think some of it too, is just the physiological changes that occur as we age and that, um, you know, there's a fear I think mm-hmm. associated with seeing declines in mm-hmm. your physical performance and what that might mean, right? The right, larger right. meaning that that might have. Um, and so I think it's really challenging uh, to navigate yeah. that in a way that is 
healthy and sustainable, right? Because, you know, most people involved in sport or exercise or physical activity, there's some underlying intrinsic motivation of enjoyment Mm -hmm. and, you know, enjoying the challenge and feeling fulfilled by the activity. You know, for me, a lot of what I really love about skating and that sustained me is I really do like the the sensory experience of it. And you still skate. Yeah. And I mean, certainly differently than I did when I was younger. Um, But, you know, luckily there are forms of skating, ice dancing in particular, that are much easier on the body. And so people- You're not jumping in the air and the same way, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so there's an opportunity, I think, to still maintain that piece of it. Um, But it's difficult. And I think- um, I guess I have a couple of thoughts for you and I'm curious to hear your okay. thoughts on this. So oh boy, okay. I love, well, I love that you're kind of bringing up these topics and, and talking to women and, and having people, you know, share their expertise. And I'm wondering what kind of feedback you're getting from listeners, because I think there's real benefit. It's huge. Yeah. I, I knew, Christy, I knew when I started this, like I'm, I'm going to be plugging into something big because mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of us out there, uh, women my age, who are. Uh, and when I started looking for my own sort of light, you know, to get through this tunnel, I couldn't find any. And I was just like, well, you know, I've I've spent a long time building this platform, quote unquote, platform, and it would be criminal if I just don't use it. So I I decided to start it, and I I cannot believe the the outpouring in just like 12 weeks time has been. Honestly, it fl- floors me, and you know, like the the, the reviews and the d- d- the messages and all that. People, people are so grateful. They're just so grateful because we don't talk about like everyone feels like they're going through it alone. So they either check out or they just you know, or they're just very sad inside, but there's nowhere to go with it. And there are like it's not one of the things that's been so empowering is that you know I hit this wall and I'm writing a book with Stacy Sims on like you know, performance in this time of age. And I'm like, I can't write your book if I can't get myself together. You know, so she really helped me change my training and change. But I also had to very much change the way I looked at myself and thought about myself, because I'm not going to be that same racer forever. You know, and the and the woman that I just interviewed, she's dropping this week, um, Casey Duke, for everyone who's listened already. Um, she's like, you already were that. Be something else. You know, take that last. You're all. You are that person who did all those things. That's never going to stop. No one's ever going to take that away from you. Mm-hmm. Now, just like pivot to like the future. What's next? Let your and it. It really did change things. So no, I'm not going to be the same super fast cross country racer. You know, doing all these stage races. Like I'm not going to be that person again. I'm not going to be that fast again. But I certainly can still do amazing things on my bicycle. You know, my bicycle can still bring me a lot of joy. And I and I do actually look in the mirror and like myself again. And that was a journey, you know. And But I, I want everybody listening to it to be able to get there because mm-hmm. it feels good. Yeah, I think th- you, you've raised so many just wonderful points um, in terms of perspective taking. And I think there's so much benefit in that, um, you know, the – the perspective of kind of reflecting back on where we've come from and then kind of sort of, you know, some awareness and acceptance of where we are and then, you know, an excitement about 
what could come next and, you know, how you can continue to challenge yourself and get enjoyment and pleasure from those activities, but maybe in a slightly different way, maybe with a different focus, maybe with a different training approach. Um, And so I think, you know, the, the perspective of like, there are multiple opportunities and multiple ways for me to move forward that will be fulfilling and meaningful. And I think having examples, you know, like you're sharing is so powerful because it's so easy to reflect on the past and really think about, I knew this one way of doing it that worked. Yep. yep. And, and I was really was happy not, then. I was really right. happy. Things were really and now, good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And now it's not working. So I must be the problem as opposed right. to, well, no, the, there are lots of ways, you know, that you can approach training, that you can approach kind of, you know, your evaluation of your body mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. all those things and it might take a little work to get unstuck from kind of what you're used to um, but I think that is just really I think it's not only fun to hear other people's stories and kind of motivating because oftentimes mm-hmm. you can relate to different aspects of it but I think it's such good role modeling yeah and I found this in um some of the body acceptance movements and I do some research on weight related stigma. And one of the things I found really um, quite powerful are, um, you know, women and men living in larger bodies so bodies that don't conform to our kind of social ideals, being active and being, um, you know, very out there in terms of I'm an athlete. You might think I don't look like an athlete, but I'm an athlete or I'm a There's dancer. There's a lot of them now. Yeah. And it's really great. It's great it, to see. Yeah. Just seeing, you know, a diversity of body shapes mm-hmm. and sizes, of ages, mm-hmm. of skill levels. There's just so much benefit, I think, of people seeing that, that they see themselves reflected in I their agree. in that population somewhere. How do you... Like if I were to come to you, because I, I know that there are a lot of women in who are listening to this who are struggling and stuck. I hear you. I see you. And I'm not I'm not saying I'm not going to be you again 10 years down the line. Who knows? But like you hit a point where you're just like, how do you if you're uh, if you are looking at the mirror and you're just filled with self-loathing at what you see, like, how do you help somebody see themselves differently like I, I you know i mean that that can be such a barrier and such a trap especially i mean you you wear ice dancing clothes and like cyclists wear lycra and runners wear you know a lot of active people wear clothing that you can you know, you're not hiding really mm-hmm. you know i think i think we've come a long way that there's so many beautiful clothes now and for active women of all sizes that i'm very happy about that but you still have to put you know be willing to put them on and put yourself out there Yeah, well, I think seeking out social support is one strategy that can be really beneficial. And so, you know, during these times of COVID, I think more and more people are turning to online um, groups and networks. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a a great way to reach out. There are, um, you know, some interesting physical activity groups uh, specifically for individuals with larger bodies. So, here in Wisconsin, there's a group. I think it's called something like Fat Girls Hike. Oh, and, we have, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there are different, I think, groups like that that mm-hmm. are very open and welcoming and inclusive to people of different body shapes and sizes. So I think that can be helpful. 
uh, on the more individual level, you, know, you can kind of take two approaches. You can try to change your thinking mm-hmm. and hope it changes your behavior, or you can try <laughs> to change your behavior and hope it changes your thinking. Okay. I think there's a little bit of individual variation on on what's a more effective strategy. And so one thing that I think is kind of fun to do is think about doing a little experiment with yourself. Just do a test run. Like you're not committing to anything, right? But maybe, you know, for the next three days, you come up with something where you're really going to think about, I would like to change my thinking and Mm -hmm. see how it affects my behavior. Okay. And maybe another week you think, I'm going to try for three days to change my behavior and see how it affects my thinking. Can you give me an example of each of those? Sure. Like, what does that really look like? Yeah. So if you are thinking, I if think you're wanting I hate to- my legs. My God, these legs. I can't put them in these shorts. Right. Okay. So you could think, yeah, that, that really feels yucky to think that. And then I mm-hmm. avoid wearing shorts and then I don't want to go outside. So you see the negative repercussions of of that kind of cognition. Mm -hmm. So one thing you can try to do is um, just change your thought and say, you know what, these legs are strong. They help me, you know, run after my kids (laughs) or grandkids. Um, They help me, you know, take care of my home and my garden that I really love. So you think about like, what, you know, what do those legs help you do that you do find really valuable and important? Um, And, you know, try to think of some triggers. So when you're brushing your teeth, for example, maybe every morning, that's what you're going to tell yourself. Um, You know, these legs, man, they power me through the day. They get me up and down the stairs. You know, they help me um, plant tomatoes in the garden Mm -hmm. now that everyone's gardening during COVID, (laughs) right? (laughs) Whatever it might be. Or they help me go for a bike ride with my grandchildren. Yep. And then you just kind of monitor your thoughts and you start to sort of see, um, does that help you change your behavior? Does it make it more likely that you do go for a bike ride with your grandchildren? Are you more likely to maybe feel comfortable going out into the garden or whatever it might be? So it would be picking a really um, specific cognitive thought that you might have, trying to change it, and then just monitoring, like, how how are you behaving maybe differently than you normally would when you're constantly saying, oh, my God, my thighs are so fat. I hate right, my right. thighs. I don't want to put shorts on. <laughs> I've had those thoughts myself, right? <laughs> I, I, I don't know anyone who, I like, no matter who, I don't know anyone who hasn't. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the other way is to think about are there behaviors you could change and then see if that impacts your thinking? Okay. So it could be no matter how I feel, I'm going to walk one mile today or I'm going to ride my bike for 10 minutes. And if I want to keep going, I can, but I'm going to be on it for 10 minutes. And, and then you start to see like, is that changing or impacting how you're thinking about your body? Like, dang, I walked a mile today. I felt felt pretty good. You know, the leaves were pretty or that was such a cute dog I saw or, you know, Mm -hmm, those kinds of things. So those are two really common kind of strategies to use. One is trying to figure out, can you change some of your thinking to then impact your behavior? And then the other is, can you change some of your behaviors to influence the the thoughts you're having? Right. And again, I think people vary in terms of, what's a little bit maybe more comfortable or what's more effective for them. Right. So okay, so for for some of the women listening, I mean, it could be, you know, a lot of them are extra, extrinsically motivated. So when events come back, but like signing up for like 
a half marathon or like whatever like those running things you would you'd like to do but now you're kind of shying away find a buddy and just sign up together and you know train like get yourself sort of to yeah the other thing so I'm trying to think maybe about 10 years ago I had never been a runner runner so I think I might be similar to you in that as a kid I was not into endurance events at all but 10 years ago a friend of mine signed up for half marathon I was like I can do it. I'll just walk if I have to. And I actually ended up really liking it. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm super slow, but I can do it. And you know when I started going to these events that I loved was just how many people of different shapes and sizes. That's awesome, right? I mean, there's so much diversity there. And the only person paying attention to you is you. Everyone is worried about themselves. Amen. (laughs) I tell my teenage daughter this all the time. (laughs) Yes. And so I think people need to remind themselves of that. Mm -hmm. Like you might feel self-conscious or concerned about how others are evaluating your your physique or whatever, your skill, your fitness. If you think that every other person there thinks that, so how much attention do they have to actually pay to anyone else? We're all worried about ourselves. To some extent, I We're think it was a little We're all in middle school deep down comfort. inside. Somehow. Yeah. So, you know, I think people need to sort of check that in themselves. Like, yeah. okay, the reality is, like, get a grip. Not everyone's looking at me or, right. you know, is really overly concerned about the size of my thighs. I'm way more <laughs> concerned about it than anybody else is. Right. What people are more interested in is, Am I finishing my race? And they're yeah. going to cheer me on as I'm doing totally. it, right? No, so, and the people on the sidelines think you're amazing. Like, no right. matter what, they're like, yeah. Totally. Yeah, so I think just, you know, reminding ourselves of that. And, you know, I think as you're building a community through your own podcast, we have each other, I think, to, you know, maybe remind each other of these kinds of things. Like, look, you're really worried about this, but the fact is – no one's really paying that much attention <laughs> to, you know. This is a you. fact. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And to stop comparing yourself. I mean, I think that that's a big thing, too. Like, people just get into that, you know. And that is a very – that's just something we do from the time we can figure out how to compare ourselves, right? Yeah. yeah. Social comparison is huge in the body image literature. And I think when you look at social comparison in athletes – I mean, it's built in, right? You're competing. Yeah. You can compare not only how you look, but you can compare your performance in an event. Mm-hmm. And in our culture, we we tend to associate someone looking fit with being fit and highly skilled. And, you know, we know that's not accurate, right. Right. but it's it can be hard to disentangle that for, you know, a lot of people. Oh, totally, totally. And I think... And I've just written about this recently. I think that as women, and men probably do it too, but we get attached to sort of this magic number, whether it's a size or a weight, you know, that this is, but it's not necessarily related to your best performance. Like I've had my best race performances 10 pounds heavier than whatever that magic number is. Mm-hmm. You know, like I look at pictures, I was like, oh, like I was like, I, I was a very solid person and I was doing very well. But like, you know, it, it, you just, you, it, it's easy to like look at that, especially in sports like cycling and running and those sports where you're just like, oh, I guess lighter is better. But that's, it's just really not always true. You know, it's it's not. So it's it's good to, reality checks are, are, are very, very helpful. 
Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, when you can become part of a community where that's the mentality, that's so helpful, where that becomes yeah. the norm as opposed to fat talk. Like, right. Oh my God, I'm right. so, right. If you're in a group where that's the norm of conversation, right. I think it's way harder right, right. <laughs> to adopt some of these healthier, maybe, perspectives than if you're in a group where people are like, you know what, my weight fluctuates over the seasons of the year. My weight fluctuates depending on where I am in training. It's a, just a natural occurrence. And really, I need to be able to perform best I can. And I need to fuel my body. I still need to enjoy all this. And so, yep. I mean, it's just sort of the, the, I think the group can make a big difference. And watching our self-talk for other for for the purpose of others, right? Yes. Like I think that we don't think about that enough either. Like I, it hurts me a lot when I hear, and, I, and I'm good friends with, with with a woman who I hear uh, putting putting herself down a lot. You know, like using terminology, the old bag kind of thing, and I and I I hate it because I think like I'm like every time you call yourself that, you call me that. You know. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, that goes back a little bit to being self-aware, like everyone is having some of these thoughts, right? And so when you're, when you're making that statement, you're making an implication about everyone around you. Same thing with weight, like, oh, I'm so fat. There's all this research on fat talk. Oh, I'm so fat. I can't eat this. I'm, you know, well, what that says to everyone else around you is, that's how I should feel too. And it's hard to, I think what's hard is to navigate the conversation where you say, I actually don't feel like that. Or here's a different perspective because you don't necessarily want to negate the person's experience and how they're feeling at the same time. Maybe it's helpful to offer, you know, a different perspective and say, it's really interesting that you you know, or saying that, and I'm, I'm sorry, that's how you're feeling. I've maybe struggled with that. And here's how I've started trying to think about it hmm. to, to offer I like that. just a little, instead you know, of just telling soft... them to shut the F up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a strategy as well. <laughs> maybe not as productive. I like yours better. <laughs> but it's, you know, maybe a soft approach. And I mean, certainly you as a friend have to feel comfortable, you know, comfortable right. and kind of figure out if the context is appropriate, but just offering maybe a different perspective where you can relate because maybe you've had similar, you know, mm -hmm. thoughts or feelings and saying, you know what, what I found is that that really hasn't, hasn't done me much good. Kind of, right. I found myself getting into that and it really didn't, didn't get me toward my goal or I just ended up feeling worse. And I've really been trying to do this. Have you, you know, have you ever thought about that or, you know, those kinds of things are tricky to navigate, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's some benefit in s someone voicing. I like that an uh, idea that mm -hmm. offers an alternative because when someone says something like that and no one else says anything, there is this kind of implied consent, like, oh yeah, <laughs> we're yeah, humbled no. and it's terrible, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> right? Which is why I wanted to stop, start this podcast to stop yeah. that. Like, I was yeah. very like that. I. I felt really strongly that I wanted to change that conversation and change the way we mm -hmm. talk about ourselves and change the way we talk, you know, in general about women this age. I, I just think it's so yeah. important because we like, and it's not just blowing sunshine or spr putting sprinkles on everything. It's legit. Like we have a lot right. to offer. There's a lot. We've done a lot. We can still do a lot. 
there's a lot going on and, and we there, we need to change our self-talk and our self-image. Um, you know. And I think the more vocal people are, the better chance we have of changing some of our cultural standards, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, one thing you find sometimes is that the focus is on, well, you just need to feel better about your body and we ignore the cultural piece, like that you're in this social right, yeah. environment. <laughs> you're in the ocean. Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. And it's like, is it really fair to ask individuals to just mm-hmm, battle mm-hmm. against these, you know, crazy kind of forces of media and advertising and all that? And so I think you can kind of take a dual approach. One is certainly do things to help yourself and help your friends. But then I think you know, like your podcasts, one of the real benefits I think can be changing cultural perspectives on women and aging and health and sport performance. There is an, you know, there are alternative ways to talk and to think about and to understand those experiences that don't conform to this um, kind of, you know, um, youth obsessed culture. And it can be really hard Uh, You can even think about like what kinds of actions can you take to support organizations and businesses that align with some of those values. So, um, you know, I get a a catalog from an athletic apparel company and I love it when I open it and I see people of all different um, body shapes and sizes in crazy yoga poses and on bikes going down mountains and you know, I'm like, this is right. awesome. Oh, it's right? awesome. Yeah. And different I, I, ages and different races. I support like, a lot of those. The same machines for freedom. I give them love all the time. Athleta, I give them love all the time because you open it up and you see that and yes. it makes a huge difference. Yeah. So I think, you know, you kind of um, can influence some of that by where you spend your money. Yeah. Right? And yeah. maybe avoiding organizations and companies that reinforce maybe unrealistic body ideals. And there are certainly yeah, lots yeah. of those. Yeah, no, 100%. I, I think, you know, one of my favorite quotes from Cindy Crawford, that was probably 10 years ago, is she's like, I wish I looked like Cindy Crawford. You know, like, it was a great <laughs> quote, because she's like, by the by the time they get done airbrushing and all that, like, I don't look like that either. And now with the face tuning and all the stuff that you can do with the apps, like none of those people look like mm-hmm. that. There are, all those images are all those images are altered. Yeah. Well, and with AI, they're not real people. Well, there's that. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, right. <laughs> I mean, if you go yeah. even further, you're seeing some of that, and I'm sure it's in some of our advertising. That's yeah. not even a human being. It's a composite of right? <laughs> tens of thousands, bits of images, right? Yeah, I think um, I think having that awareness and then doing what you can to maybe push back against some of that mm-hmm. is really um, powerful. Because that socialization piece and the culture that we are, you know, just embedded in, that just influences us so much. It shapes our sense of reality. It, you know, it's really hard to to see outside of that. Yep, yep. And, you know, like yeah. we mentioned earlier, I think as you get older, you just have more experiences and you can maybe see some of that a little bit more easily. But by then, people are often so entrenched in it that it, it's hard to even think about it. Right, right, which is why we're having this conversation yeah. because I think it is, it is really important. It's funny, I had... Uh, you know, I think 
I think about it a lot because I think that the way that you carry yourself is so powerful too. Because I used to work on a lot of photo shoots for like when the women's magazines were a big thing. And, you know, you could see someone who wasn't quote unquote perfect. You know, they didn't have like by all the traditional standards what the, you should look for in a magazine. But just the way they projected, you'd be like, oh my Lord, that person is amazing. Like it, a lot of it, I mean, it's so cliche to say it comes from within, but it really comes from within. Like Annie Lennox, do you know who that is? The singer mm-hmm. of the, yeah. she, I thought, I just started following her Instagram. I turned to my husband, I'm like, she is so beautiful because she's just, she literally just radiates. She's still got the same hair. It's all gray, but it's that short cropped hair, like no makeup really. But I'm like, she looks more amazing than someone who's had $12 million worth of work. Mm-hmm. And it's all because of where, how she's just like putting her beautiful self into the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned her because I, I did some skating to her music <gasps> and quite Which loved song? it. Um, no More I Love Yous mm-hmm. and What I Lie to You. Oh, super so, fun. So mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, she's a wonderful example. And then I also think of Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, yep. Very, right up there. Another one. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, this is real life. You know, it's, there's, there's nothing wrong with change, right? right. As a culture, we have assigned meaning to physical changes, graying hair. I right, think I told right. you early on, my, my hair is turning know. quite gray and I, I thought gave it was up coloring blonde. it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so it's funny, like for me, you know, people always think I'm much younger than I really am. Mm-hmm. And I, I started going gray quite young and I colored my hair for decades because I got some benefit out of people assuming I was much younger. Right. And when I decided to let my hair go gray, I struggled with that a little bit because I thought, oh, people are going to think I'm old. <laughs> right. And and there was a concern. And I eventually got over that and said, get a grip. <laughs> it doesn't right. matter really what other people think. You don't want to color your hair anymore. So that's fine. But it's really difficult, right? Because well, people we get... worry about ageism. I mean, that is the yes. thing. Like when, as a woman, like you get this dual sided thing. And I think that that's what we run into with the body image thing. Like yes. we're banging into ageism and the whole youth culture with women and like and then going through all this hormonal havoc so like we're just sort of getting whacked by a lot of different things that you know it's it it, there's no blame out there if you're feeling kind of crappy sometimes people like it's hard it's not easy i mean it would be unusual for someone not to have the some of those experiences given if you're in a western culture right because that's what you're taught. Yeah. And so yep. it would be quite unusual for someone not to have learned those lessons and right. taken some, at least some of them to heart. Right. 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 Yeah. It's interesting. And, you know, there are some, some cultural variations in terms of perspectives on aging and women's body shapes and sizes and that kind of thing. And, you know, in some cultures, I think there's a little more uh, acceptance of aging and acceptance mm-hmm. of, you know, uh, diversity and body shapes and sizes that or even maybe, reverence i mean not even acceptance yeah. let's be clear like some cultures there's reverence for aging yeah absolutely that there's wisdom and yeah. experience and um yeah so you know i think we have such a narrow perspective it yeah. seems so ubiquitous because we're just bombarded with those messages um, but i think if we can take a broader perspective, that can be helpful as well. And then, you know, with your work, particularly in the sport domain, 
I think, uh, you know, if we could get more awareness of things like um, the Senior Olympics and mm -hmm. Masters events and, you know, that that people of all ages maintain their sport involvement throughout their lives and just love it. Yep. I, I teach an undergraduate class and we look at sociological aspects of, of health and human movement. And we watch this really awesome documentary called Age of Champions. If anyone has access to this, it's fabulous. It's about these senior Olympians. So there's a guy uh, who's super excited to turn 100 because he's going to age up. He's going right? to age up. Oh, my God. Yep, he's going to age up and he's going to dominate his 80-year-old competitor. <laughs> right? They're, I mean, it's just really fascinating stories. There's a story of a, a women's basketball team. I think they're in Louisiana. And, you know, they're all in their 60s. That's and awesome. They're talking about being aggressive and getting black eyes from getting elbowed during. Right. I mean, it's just fantastic to see some of those examples. Right. Where it just opens your eyes and you're like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Yeah, <laughs> like, no. Why, why aren't I doing it right now? <laughs> right. Like, just look around and see what, what is what is possible. I, I think there's a lot. I, I'm, I'm very positive and optimistic because I do think that things are, I mean, everything, progress never moves as fast as we want. But I think progress is being made, for sure. Like, I think that... You know, my daughter is growing up in a much better place in many ways than than I did as far as like the whole weight and body image thing is concerned. You know, because they're, you know, she's, she calls it thick. She's like, I'm a little thick, you know, but that's good. Like, she's happy with that. And I'm like, hey, man, I'm so happy to hear you talk that way. And, you know, the CrossFit, you know, whatever you think about it, I, I give it a lot of props because those women use the hashtag take up space. And I love it. I'm just like. Because we were taught, you got to be small, small, small is better. Don't take up, you know, and oh, yeah. like, this is, I, I love hearing that. I love hearing that. Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting shift in thinking, right? Because I think, you know, maybe when we were younger, there, I think there was a lot of good intention of this is what, what you need to look like to be healthy. <laughs> and I mean, it was just. But it's not true. It's a lie. It's, like the, the is, statistics don't bear it on, out. That's right. It's based on flawed science. It's sometimes based on non-science. Right? Yeah, the BMI, I did a whole story on right. BMI. And like the people who are overweight are the longest lived, you know, exactly technically right. in BMI. Yeah. 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 And so I think we know better now. And I forget who said, who said the quote, you know, when you know better, do better. Yes. Yes. Right. right. I don't know like, who okay. said it either, but it's yeah. a great quote. So we we know better now, and we know more about the complexities of weight and the complexities. And that was so also a white oriented chart, yes. the BMI thing. Like, I mean, we know that the culturally there's different body types and shapes yeah. that are not typically Caucasian. I mean, Caucasian and Asian and Black African American, like all of them. You can't just have like this one chart. Like you should be right. in this, you know. <laughs> Well, yeah. yeah. And as you, I'm sure, you know, um, found in your research on BMI, you know, it really wasn't intended to be used at the individual level. It right. was really based on insurance charts. Yeah. yeah. So many of those things. Data. The metro metropolitan yeah. height weight charts are the same yes. thing from the 50s. Those were all right. insurance. And everybody was smoking cigarettes. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> But you're a healthy weight. So you, were okay. so, you were so slender <laughs> with your cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. So we know better now. Our, I think our science is better. Even, you know, in the scientific community, I think there's more pushback against 
what has traditionally been kind of seen as uh, a desire and a motivation to get people in a quote-unquote healthy weight category through intervention, I think people are recognizing, one, those interventions don't work. So dieting doesn't work. Even increasing physical activity, unless you're doing it to an extreme level, generally doesn't have big impacts on your Like the biggest loser. What a terrible disaster that was. yes, yes. I mean – what a horrible representation of what an effort to, you know, in the name of health. Mm -hmm. It's just a terrible, terrible uh, picture to present to people that that's what is needed or that that's how people deserve to be treated or that that's what's required to motivate people living in larger body. I mean, the whole thing was horrible. So I think, I think our science is, changing a little bit. One of the challenges I see is that a lot of um, federal funding for research is still tied to either weight loss or weight gain prevention. Um, And primarily because they link those things with chronic disease like diabetes and cancer risk. I think some scientists are disentangling some of that, but that's a much easier message to sell than this more complex nuance, like oh, there are a whole lot of other factors that are going right, into right, cancer yeah. risk and to diabetes. Super hard. Super hard. Um, but it all but, ties into the same thing. It all like makes you tie all of your self worth and image and all that stuff to what we're talking about, like a number yes. or a size. And and now that we're older and wiser <laughs> and we know better, That's we can. Right. Um, I I want to make sure that we cover like though you know there's certainly. I think almost any athlete has some sort of, or even active person has a little bit of level of disordered eating, right? Like there's, it's very hard to like not have some sort of disordered thought processes about eating. And a lot of them are hidden in paleo, keto, carnivore, high carb, no fat, low fat, whole 30. I could go on all day with these, Mm -hmm. like, right? Like I feel like a lot of times we latch on to that for healthy looking disordered eating. Am I... Yes. Yeah. Yes. So orthorexia is Yes, that's the word I'm looking yes, for. Yes. <laughs> is what you're describing on a clinical level, but anytime you are restricting what you're eating, that is a sign that could be problematic. Mm-hmm. Anytime you have very rigid beliefs or thoughts about food being good or bad, clean or unclean, however you want to categorize it. If you're having to categorize foods into something that's good or something that's bad, that, that's kind of a signal or a sign of maybe, you know, something problematic. And then when you've got sort of a disproportionate connection between your eating and exercise behaviors and your self-evaluation, when those mm-hmm. are so t- strongly tied together, um, that can be problematic as well. And so, It's really interesting. Many, many years ago, uh, some researchers in eating disorders did an article, I think probably describing what what you are conceptualizing in terms of um, to be a quote unquote good athlete, do you have to engage in some disturbed eating behaviors? Because a lot of the characteristics are very similar. There's some overlap, right? In terms of rigidity, in terms of being... um, very planned, disciplined, you know, we, however you Yes, work. right. That's mm-hmm. right. When you think about, um, you know, some of the phrases we hear nowadays about self-compassion and mindfulness and, 
you think about, you know, having a flexible approach to eating, listening to internal cues of hunger and satiety, those kinds of things, right? And for high-level athletes, there are questions about, can you do that? <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's very hard. And I'm not trying right. to point – I don't want to point fingers because I am 100%, you know, in that category too that – I try not to bucket food that way, but I certainly do. Like, there's definitely food that I'm like, that's garbage. And, you know, it kind of is garbage, but is it delicious garbage? I don't know. But, you know, but, like, I, I try to frame it all in in trying to listen to my body and what do I need and just eating food. Like, I don't – I am not, like, people are like, oh, do you count macros? I'm like, no, that is – that will take me down a very terrible road. Like, all you know, I just – I eat food. I have learned to eat when I'm hungry, you know, because you mm -hmm. start to disassociate mm -hmm. those things. Yes. Um, but I find that if I do actually feed myself some really nice food when I'm hungry and it, that it, it leads to good things, it leads to better behaviors and actually a better everything. I perform better and I sleep yeah. better, but it, it, it's not easy. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, the eating plans you mentioned, keto or paleo, you know, the thing that's often very attractive about those is they're very black and white and there's people just want to know what to eat. There's not a lot of decision making. Yeah. There's not a lot of listening to their bodies. And I think because so many of us um, grow up that way or in some part grow up in diet culture, it can be really scary to think about listening to your body. How do I know when I'm hungry? How do I, what if I just want to eat 10 gallons of ice cream? And, right. And so, you know, with mindfulness, like there's been a quite a bit of research. That's generally not what happens over the long term. Uh, mindful eating is not associated with weight gain. You know, like it's it's very weight neutral, which I think is a really helpful approach um, to think about weight in a neutral manner. Like my weight is a consequence of a whole lot of things, some of which are in my control and a whole bunch aren't in my control. And weight fluctuation, is a natural occurrence, you know, from day to day, morning to night, month to month. And so I think kind of recognizing that can be useful, but when you're really focused on performing at a certain level, I think it comes back to this idea of, well, you have a very, um, very specific approach that you can control these things that you see connected to performance outcomes. And it's really hard to disentangle that. But I think your approach of um, backing off of like not counting macros, for example, taking a little bit broader perspective can be really helpful. And, um, you know, certainly you need to fuel your body appropriately as an athlete. And I think part of that can include foods that maybe aren't the most nutritious, but that are pleasurable and enjoyable and that you eat in a social setting to celebrate or, you know, whatever. Right. And I think what, what is a, a differentiator in terms of maybe that kind of approach and then disordered eating is, you know, if you, if you are eating foods that others might consider bad or not clean or whatever terminology you want to use is what's the um, kind of emotional response to it. Do you experience really strong feelings of guilt and shame and feeling like you need to somehow make up for that or punish yourself? Or do you have more of an accepting approach? Well, that, you know, that was really tasty and yummy and I got to be with my friends and eat, you know, whatever it was we ate. And 
that's okay. I'm an active person and food, while certainly for an athlete, you know, is needed to fuel performance and training, food is also a part of our culture and our social world and is supposed to be pleasurable and enjoyable. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. I mean, and and this again, like these, I, I, I'm I by no means want to paint any of this as though it's easy for anybody. I mean, I, I you know, I certainly understand. And if you have found something and, and when you are you know, athletes are also people of routine. You know, so if you get up and you have to have your oatmeal mm-hmm. with the almond milk with the pumpkin seeds on it, by all means, you know, go ahead and do that. But I, I think just listening to what Christy is saying and just just being aware if like the rigidity is taking over your life is is not a bad right? Is that what I'm hearing? Mm-hmm. Yes. So um in terms of thinking about like is my eating problematic mm-hmm. and maybe moving toward, you know, um, eating disorder. One of the things you can pay attention to is kind of what you were describing. Is my behavior or are my thoughts disrupting my ability to function as I want to function? So if something you're doing or thinking is preventing you from socializing, if you don't want to go see your friends because you're afraid they're going to be eating things you don't want to eat or you feel that you can't eat, that's a sign. Like, that's disrupting your mm-hmm. your life. Um, if it's impacting your health, certainly right. that's a sign. If you're doing things in secret, you feel like you can't be transparent about what you're eating. So maybe you feel like I'm only going to eat half my oatmeal, but I want everyone to think I ate right. all my oatmeal. Right. Right. So if you're doing those kinds of things, those are signs that that the behaviors and the cognitions are just are dysfunctional right right? they're not helping you to live in a way that's fulfilling and kind of um safe for you yeah and it's if somebody does have what they would consider i mean that that's you know i i think there's fine lines what well you can tell me is there an actual linear definition between disordered eating and eating disorder yeah, technically, yes. So um, the American Psychiatric Association has the DSM, which is um, a di- it's for diagnosing uh, psychiatric conditions and eating disorders are part of that. And so, you know, people are probably familiar with mm-hmm. anorexia mm-hmm. and bulimia and binge eating disorder. And there, there are some others listed in there. And they do have very specific um, clinical criteria that have to be met to have that diagnosis. And they actually just revised some of them somewhat recently. So for example, for anorexia in the past, one of the clinical uh, markers was amenorrhea for a certain amount of time. So women stopped Yeah, you don't need period. to. I never stopped well, getting my period. Exactly. And what they found is they were excluding oh, men. Well, there's that. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> So they've made some changes, um, I think, you know, to try to more accurately reflect some of the diagnoses. And I, th- I think at least my understanding is these are really criteria that are going to put someone at risk for serious health consequences. So clinical eating disorders do have a fairly high mortality yeah. rate in comparison to other psychiatric conditions and are often very resistant to treatment. 
there is an underlying, at least from what I've seen in literature, an underlying biological or genetic component that comes into play. Um, and so, yeah, having a clinical eating disorder, it is it is more than like not being happy right, with how you right. look. Or, or this kind of rigidity you know, that you're talking about. Yeah, but <laughs> I mean... There, there are definitely are, here, and I right? worry because you, yeah. you, I, I just want to interject here because our audience, some of them don't get their periods anymore because they're menopausal, but there's a very big concern about low energy availability in this audience, you women that I'm talking to, because your bone structure, you know, all that stuff is depends on you fueling yourself properly. And if you are in a constant mm -hmm. state of low energy availability, which means you're not eating enough, and most active women don't, you are robbing your body, you are actually sometimes it's counterproductive, sometimes you're actually not losing whatever that weight you, you're complaining about, or you're worried about, because you're in this constant state of not fueling yourself of not feeding yourself. So your body is just always stressed, your cortisol is always high, you're always storing. And it's it's a hard cycle to break, but I think it's an important cycle mm -hmm. to break. Yeah, and and you know, although we know that clinical eating disorders are quite serious, like yeah. have very yeah. serious health um, risk, that's not to say that disordered eating, which is on the less severe end of the spectrum, can't be particularly problematic for people and really disrupt yeah. people's lives and prevent them Make from, happy. from being as active. Yeah, from being happy and doing the activities they want to do. And, um, you know, your comments about adequately providing energy for your body, you know, it's so important. And it's, it's such a, I think, worthwhile message to take yeah. to heart in all of this in terms of, um, you know, your appearance versus your body function. And there's a little danger, I think, too, in, in looking at aging and health and um, falling into this mentality of healthism, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? That health is the ultimate goal. Everyone should be trying to achieve and doing whatever they can to achieve. Well, only certain aspects of our health are really under our control and a whole lot isn't. And so it's figuring out, you know, what can you do to make your life the best it can be that you know, is really within your control. And then having some level of acceptance that some things you're, you're probably not going to be able to do a whole lot about without taking very extreme action, which is probably not, you know, very wise. So I think it's sort of this combination of, you know, what can I do to, you know, stay in my sport or maintain my activity and really get, you know, continue to get enjoyment out of it and um, kind of tackle that challenge aspect of it. And at the same time, having a level of kind of acceptance that it might look a little different than it did in the past. And that's okay. And there's a whole community here to support women in that effort. I think that is a, a great place to, to actually wrap this up. I mean, is there anything that, that we haven't covered that you thought would be beneficial for this audience to hear? I think we've covered a whole lot of really important topics. And, you know, I just would encourage people to be kind to themselves. Um, I think that can go a long way. Just, you know, recognizing that we've got goals we want to achieve um, and and that we may or may not accomplish them, but there's some joy in striving. I think that's 
um, for me, something I always benefit from having that mentality that it's the the process of striving to meet the mm -hmm. challenge that is really meaningful and valuable, whether or not I actually meet my challenge or not. Okay, that's our show. Join me next week when I sit down with Dr. Lauren Stryker, author of Sex Rx, Hormones, Health, and Your Best Sex Ever. We talk about, well, you guessed it, sex. <laughs> there have been a whole lot of questions about sexual health and menopause in our channels, and Dr. Stryker is all about improving your sexability. Just as you would improve your 5K running time or your deadlift in the gym, you'll work on it. She had so much good advice to share, you won't want to miss it. So until next week, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.